Over the last few weeks, I've been fascinated to watch hundreds of thousands of protesters in the streets of France. What would cause these people to be so angry? Setting buildings on fire, fighting with police who had to repel them by using water cannons. Thousands of protesters arrested. Why? The proposal by the national government to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. This is a nation that will not fight for much, but they'll fight and destroy to quit meaningful labor at 62. As we open the book of Joshua, it's been 40 years since the sad day of Israel's rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And for the last 40 years, Joshua has happily served as Moses' assistant. But his career for 40 years seems to have fallen off the map, laboring in obscurity. He's now 80 years old. I don't want to let us forget that at all as we begin to expound formally the book of Joshua now. He's 80 years old, but he's not ready for a nursing home or even retirement. The bulk of his life's work lies before him. And I'm frequently going to remind you that we're studying an 80-year-old man, and he'll grow older through the book as we go through it. There are many seniors in the church, perhaps even some in this congregation, who think they're done and have no more usefulness in the kingdom of God because they're past 62. One benefit that's going to come from our study is that the Lord may just be preparing you for your most important work, and we're going to see models of that with Joshua and Caleb. So we prepare to open this text. Let me encourage you to open your Bible to Joshua 1, and let's pray together seeking the Lord's help. Our Father, you have given the word for our instruction. And by your providential care, you've preserved the word pure and intact for millennia so that not one of your words has fallen to the ground, so that we hold in our hands tonight the absolute truth. So now as we open this pure word, pour out the Holy Spirit, and give us tender and teachable hearts, we pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you're going to understand the context, you're going to need to turn one page back and look at Deuteronomy 34, because this is almost a seamless transition from Deuteronomy 34 into the book of Joshua. Now, I want you to notice what we find there. This will help set the stage for us. In Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 3, Moses sees the promised land. He doesn't get to enter it, but he at least gets to see it. And then in verse 4, you will notice the promise is restated. Now, this promise is going to be the central thing I want you to see tonight. I'm going to ask you to be adept with your copy of God's Word tonight and look look with me at the many restatements of the promise. This is just one iteration in verse 4. As the Lord is showing to Moses the land, he reminds him, Oh, by the way, this is the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I've caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. And the promise is the central issue in our text tonight. Because what we're going to see is persons come and go. Moses gives way to Joshua. The person doesn't matter. It's the promise that matters. Then look at verse 5 and 6. You have the death and burial In hidden obscurity, only the Lord knows where Moses is buried. And you have this odd fact that I'm going to explain a tiny bit more in verse 7. Moses dies in strength. And then in verse 8, Israel weeps for Moses for a month. 
And that transitions us to Joshua chapter 1. Now, the first thing you should notice if you're looking back over to Deuteronomy 34.7 is Moses, we are told, dies a strong and healthy man. And this has befuddled many who say, well, Carl, what does his death certificate say? What's the cause of death? Well, only this. The Lord's people die when he calls them. I have buried people, have known people, have been in the hospital and at people's homes when they were dying, and I've seen people die of just what doctors say, old age, or a specific sickness, or an accident, or an act of war. These and many others can be listed on a certificate as the cause of death, but the real cause of death is always the same. The Father's call. Aren't we told in Psalm 31, by the psalmist, as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. You're, my times are in your hand. Our days and years are controlled by a sovereign God. Even if Moses still has vigor and he, we're told in Deuteronomy 34, 7, he doesn't need glasses or anything like that, it's simply his time. Well, Joshua, and you can feel a little bit of pity for him, he must follow a man who's a giant. The distinction between Moses and Joshua is reinforced, if you look there in chapter 1, verse 1, is reinforced by the language of verse 1. Notice the difference in their titles. Moses is called the servant of the Lord. Joshua is simply Moses' assistant. Moses is mentioned 57 times in the book of Joshua. Even though he's dead, it's still Israel has a, a Moses complex. In fact, in Joshua chapter 1, Moses is mentioned 11 times alone. And if you look back to Deuteronomy 34, we'll see a little bit of reason why Moses is so highly regarded. Look back to Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. As an epitaph for Moses, we read, Since then there is not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses. Here it comes. Whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Just the fact that Moses was said to, to know the Lord face to face is stunning. Now what this is speaking of, if you don't remember, it's speaking of all the times recorded for us in the Pentateuch where Moses had private communion with Jehovah. For example, Moses spends 40 days atop Mount Sinai where the Lord hands the law to him in Exodus 31. The Lord meets again with Moses in Exodus 34. And there, the Lord doesn't give Moses the law. He engages in self-revelation. He proclaims himself. He tells Moses his character. He carefully discloses who he is and how he acts. And so the reason why Moses is so highly regarded is everybody may say, well, there's Abraham, there's David, there's Paul, there's Joshua. They do mighty things, but nobody knew God face to face. Ever so often you see men in Scripture who stand head and shoulders above everyone else, as I mentioned, Abraham, David, Isaiah. And their successors seem to be dwarfed, for example, when Paul is followed by Timothy. And as Joshua is mourning for those 30 days with all of Israel, no doubt he's struck by his own weakness. Moses, his, his words and deeds constantly appear in the Psalms, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, even in Revelation. Just to compare with you, Joshua's name is found only one place in the New Testament. 
in Acts chapter 4. And this is actually good news for us. When we consider Joshua, we're looking at a man who's more like we are, someone of lesser gifts. Notice how the book begins. Look at Joshua 1 verse 2 where the Lord says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now remember, Moses was beloved by Joshua. He'd been Joshua's day-by-day companion. And as the book opens, Joshua, like everyone else in the nation, is still grieving. Now, I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze the text or Joshua, but he's hurting. His mentor is gone. His heart is heavy, and he's about to get loaded up with incredibly weighty responsibilities. Joshua, by the way, is not stupid. He's not blind and deaf. And he's been seeing and hearing for the last 40 years how the leader of Israel has been constantly critiqued. At times, he was standing right by Moses' side when the nation was ready to stone Moses to death. So Joshua knows what he's about to inherit. His approval ratings are about to plummet simply because he'll be the leader of Israel. And notice the Lord makes this theocentric. Moses, my servant, is dead. The instrument has changed, but the work of the Lord goes on. God takes another tool out of his tool chest and continues. God's kingdom is not hamstrung because gifted men pass on. There is no man who is indispensable. The PCA has had an amazing, uh, more than her share of great men. This is our 50th anniversary this summer at General Assembly. And I've known each of the five men I've known I've met. Some I knew better than others. I've, I've known the five giants we've had in the PCA. Francis Schaefer, who we met in Memphis in 1981. D. James Kennedy, who we shared a, a meal in an elevator with. R.C. Sproul, who we knew better, and Jim Boyce, who we'd met. And then Morton Smith, who's like a father, who stood in this pulpit and preached my installation here. All of them great men, yet all five of them are now with the Lord. They have proven to be dispensable. The PCA has continued to move and continued to grow. And we, the PCA, were a a tiny subset of the kingdom of God, but an accurate picture of the kingdom. There is no man whose death will spell the end of the PCA. And there is no man whose death will spell the end of God's kingdom. Well, it may mean the end of that man's little kingdom, but not the kingdom of God. And this fact is a guard against self-importance. God can raise up new leaders from obscure roots. Perhaps the best picture of that is one of my heroes, George Mueller. George Mueller was a a German immigrant, a remarkable Moses-like man, who moved to London as a young man. He created this, this nonprofit called the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. It had five branches. Mueller started each of these five. First were his orphanages. Mueller founded and operated the Ashley Downs Orphanage in Bristol, England, which cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life. The requirement for placement in this orphanage was that the child had to have lost both parents by death and be destitute. The orphanage would feed and clothe and educate these children. Together, the orphanages linked vocational training schools and a cutting-edge program of internships. The orphanage consisted of several large dormitories on the campus. Mueller built it all. The second branch of his Scripture Knowledge Institute was schools, Christian schools, for both children and adults to teach Bible knowledge. He established 117 of them in England. 
which schooled 120,000 students, many of them orphans, who received extensive biblical training. Third branch of his operation was Bible distribution. Mueller realized after preaching in several rural churches that many were the congregations where nobody had a Bible. And so Mueller paid for printing and shipping costs, employed men who placed them in hospitals and schools, businesses, over a million Bibles in his lifetime. A fourth branch, evangelistic book distribution. Mueller paid for printing and shipping costs and employed men who distributed them. His favorite books to print and distribute were those of his dearest friend, Charles Spurgeon. In the fifth branch of his ministry, and this was what was closest to his heart, even more so than the orphanage, Mueller funded, out of his own pocket, hundreds of home and foreign missionaries himself. At one time, he was underwriting 130 missionaries to China alone, in addition to many others. The last year of his life, Mueller was interviewed by a reporter who said, Mr. Mueller, what will become of the orphan houses when you die? Mueller said, the orphan houses in the land are in the hands of 11 godly trustees. The interviewer said, but Mr. Mueller, where will you find the man who will carry on the work in the same manner as you do, trusting God wholeheartedly? Mueller said, when the Lord is pleased to take me home, he will prove once again that he was not dependent upon me and he can easily raise up a more gifted servant than me. I'm always fascinated by the timing of transitions and the timing of God's providence. Joshua probably had reason to question the timing of God's providence. Didn't think this was the best moment for a leadership transition because there they are once again on the border of Canaan. Israel's back at the doorway. And the last time they were in the position, 40 years ago, you remember Joshua had urged the nation to enter in and they balked. And no doubt Joshua thought, oh well, here we go again. But this time, all the slings and arrows will be pointed at me. Look at the service that's demanded of Joshua and Israel. Look at verse 2. After the statement of fact, the death of Moses, the Lord gives two imperatives to Joshua. Look what they are. They're simple. No way they can be misunderstood. Arise and go. Joshua, you've been right next to the seat of power for 40 years. You've been training. You've been tested and found faithful. You're a proven commodity. By the way, God's kingdom works this way today. Leadership roles are for men who have been trained and tested. That's the biblical model. Think about this in Acts chapter 6 when the elders are saying to the congregation in Jerusalem, that huge congregation, that they need to choose seven deacons. And they tell them in Acts 6.3, first of all, these men need to be known. They need to be men of good reputation. And second, they need to be gifted. You must know that they're full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 that before men can be brought into leadership, they must be tested. Well, Joshua's been tested for 40 years. So the first imperative, look at it there in verse 2, is arise. What the Lord is saying to Joshua is, don't let sadness and mourning hinder you from your duty and your calling. We should learn from this, let every loss of manpower quicken us to zealous labor. And we should be reminded over and over again, God's cause is not dependent on any one of his servants. So what is the service God demands of Joshua? Look at verse 2 again. Arise, go. This is a call to head out to go into the promised land. 
He's to take all the people in the nation except those people listed in Joshua 1.14. Look at that and see who the people are who Joshua doesn't have to go with, women and children. He's to rise up and go and cross a swollen, fast-moving River Jordan. By the way, we, we know what the River Jordan was like at this time of year because we read in Joshua 3.15, the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. And so he's staring at the Jordan, he's thinking, I've got this fast, class 5 rapids river in front of me. How am I going to cross? And he's to lead the men as an army into hostile enemy territory. And Joshua knows this. He knows that the minute they cross the Jordan, if they can successfully cross the Jordan, the fight is on. They've de facto declared war upon the inhabitants of Canaan. And the people of Canaan, as Joshua can look across the river, he sees the people of Canaan are well entrenched inside major cities with strong defensive systems and high walls. A repeated and vital issue throughout the book of Joshua is that even though the Lord is giving the land to Israel, and we'll see that in just a moment, Israel must fight for it. Now, did you hear that? God will say repeatedly, I'm giving you the land, now go fight for it. Think of a present under the tree at Christmas with your name on it. It only becomes yours when you take it and open it. Just so the Lord repeatedly says to Israel, it's yours, go take it. Well, what I want you to see, and this is really the, the key thought from this first context of Joshua 1, is the continuity of God's promise. Now look at verses 3 and 4. And you'll notice that once again, and this is nothing new to Israel, they've heard these boundaries before, the boundaries of the promised land are stated. Look what they are in verse 4. You have on one side an expansive desert, the Arabian desert. You have on another side a dominant river, the Euphrates. You have on another side a snow-capped <coughs> mountain range. That's speaking of Lebanon. And on the other side, on the west, your western border of the promised land, is the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. All of it will be given to Israel. Notice in verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Now what I want you to see, and I want you to roll up your sleeves and do the work. I know it's, I know it's the end of a long Sunday and I know you're just exhausted and the thought of like reaching back a few pages and turning is almost too much to think. But look back to Genesis 12 with me and I want you to notice how old this promise is. This promise that God was going to give, key operative word, give freely by grace, give the land to the descendants of Abraham, it's first made, the promise is first made, but it's certainly not last made, in Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7. Look there, Genesis 12, 6, Abraham passed through the land of the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moriah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Look across the page at the next chapter, Genesis 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and width, for I give it to you. The Lord's just getting warmed up. Look then at Genesis chapter 15. 
And the reason why I want you to see this is, once again, is the Lord may change his persons from Moses to Joshua, but he doesn't change his promise, the promise of the land. Look at Genesis 15, verse 18. The same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and then he names all the tribes who are currently in that land. And you'd think, okay, it's all given to Abraham. When Abraham dies, the promise goes away. Nope. Look at Genesis 28. Track the promise with me. Genesis 28, verse 13. Now the same promise will be renewed. The covenant promise will be renewed in verse 13 with Jacob. Genesis 28, 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abram, Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And then verse 14 gives the dimensions again. And again, <clears throat> my, my intention here is to make you so tired of this, you say, white flag, Carl, I get it. The promise has been repeated. Look at Genesis 35. Where the Lord speaks to Jacob again. Genesis 35, 12. <clears throat> the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants. After you, I give this land. And then look at one other place, although we can multiply it by dozens. Look at one other account. Look at Genesis chapter 50 at the very end of the book of Genesis. Now another generation goes by. And Joseph repeats the covenant promise. In Genesis 50, verse 24 and 25, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And look what he makes the people of Israel do. Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And he made them put him in a coffin to carry around until they could take him to the the promised land. So I have to tell you, though, the entire territory of the promised land would not be occupied completely until Solomon's reign in 1 Kings verse 4. Well, notice the Lord doesn't give explanations to Joshua about how he would accomplish these things because God's people live on promises, not explanations. So Look back at verses 3 and 4, and I want you to notice, or verses 2, 3, and 4, I want you to notice the promise of God-given success. And the emphasis is upon the land as a gift. Israel is to think, when they think of the, the land, they're to think of in these words, promise and gift. It's something that's promised to us, it's something that's given to us. So, for example, in verse 2, notice what the Lord says. The land which I am giving. And then again in verse 3, I have given you. In verse 6, which I swore to their fathers to give them. God repeatedly repeats the truth that Canaan is a free gift to them. They weren't entitled to this land. Neither they nor their ancestors had done anything to merit it. It was charity. We have another word that we like better. It was all of grace. They hadn't earned this land. God is no man's debtor. He's simply the giver. The Lord never says, now listen, I'm going to put you in the land, but you're going to have to pay me back. You're going to have to work hard, and I'll make 
payments for you, but you're going to have to pay me for this land. No. Notice all the language spoken of about the promised land. It's gift language. God is handing them deed and title for nothing. Isn't this a picture of our salvation? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Or when Paul writes in Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved, and that through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So not only does God promise he's going to give a gift, he promises success. Look at verse 5. When the Lord tells Joshua that no one will be able to successfully resist them. Now this too is a repetition. It's fascinating because Joshua, if you know anything about Joshua 1, all it is is repetition from Deuteronomy. If you've read Deuteronomy, you've read Joshua 1. And the Lord had already promised in Deuteronomy 7, and he knows that God's people are so hard-headed, so quick to disbelieve that they need renewals, covenant renewals, promise renewals over and over again, just like we do. And in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord had already said to Israel, the Lord your God will deliver the Canaanites over to you, and you'll inflict defeat upon them until they're destroyed. He'll deliver kings into your hand, and you'll destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. In other words, the Lord says, you'll have success. Look at verse 5. What do we see again? Once again, no man shall be able to stand against you. They're going to conquer all their enemies. Now, what's fascinating and I want you to think of what's going through Joshua's mind in this moment. The Lord tells him, you're going to succeed. You're an 80-year-old man and you think, maybe I'm, I'm washed up, maybe my time has passed, but you're going to succeed. What's fascinating is Joshua is being told what he had told the nation of Israel 40 years ago in Numbers 14. Joshua, you remember, had said these very same words. He had said in Numbers 14, don't rebel against the Lord nor fear the people of the land. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. You've heard me repeatedly say that Joshua points to the greater Joshua. And that this Joshua, you see here in the book of Joshua, is a type and a foreshadowing. How so? Those who go into battle under the greater Joshua, our Joshua, Jesus, armed with his powerful sword, his word, will conquer and subdue all the nations. This conquering by the bow and the sword of the nations inhabiting Canaan is a dim, shadowy picture of our triumph over the nations under Jesus. Does the Bible say that Jesus will conquer and reign over all the nations? Well, remember what Jesus' Father says to him at the ascension. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of earth for your possession. We have the same unshakable promise that we too, under the greater Joshua's kingship, will triumph. For example, in Psalm 22, we are told, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before him, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Or in Daniel chapter 7, once again, a picture of Christ is given. To him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all nations and peoples and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Or that final picture of the triumph of Christ. It's perhaps the most glorious, staggering, awe-inspiring picture of Jesus in the Bible, in Revelation 19. 
We're shown a snapshot of Jesus. We're told he sits on a white horse. He's called faithfulness and true. <clears throat> and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His head contains many crowns. He has a name written except no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. That's our Joshua who goes forth conquering and to conquer. How do we conquer? A moment ago, Pastor Anderson read the Great Commission, Matthew 28. The way we conquer is to obey the Great Commission and go and make not captives, not casualties, but converts of all the nations. Did you hear that? We don't go to make captives or casualties of all the nations, but converts. Will we triumph even though the battle is long and difficult? Yes, we have God's repeated promise. He promises that he will build his church through us and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Will there be setbacks? Yes, we'll see one in Joshua 7 at Ai. But it's the unshakable confidence of the suffering church that she one day will be the victorious church. We must be cured of our pessimillennialism. That we are not to huddle in a corner waiting for the rapture. No, we're to go forward in the power of the Holy Spirit under the banner of Jesus and conquer the nations with the gospel. Listen to Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, I'm not a believer in the theory that the world will grow worse and worse and that age will wind down with general darkness. Earth's sun is to go down with a tenfold night if our dispensational brethren are to be believed. Not so do we expect, but we are looking for a day when the dwellers in every land shall learn righteousness, shall trust in the Savior and worship at his footstool. Our dispensational brothers, Spurgeon continues, have greatly dampened the zeal of the church for missions. And the sooner they are shown to be unscriptural, the better for the cause of God. Such views do not rightly interpret prophecy, nor honor God, nor inspire the church with zeal. Notice the key promise. Look back to our text, Joshua 1, verse 5. How is Joshua to conquer? By his strength? No, he's an old man. He's been cashing Social Security checks for 15 years. He's to be strong because God is with him. And this is repeated again in Joshua 1.9, in Joshua 3.7, in Joshua 6, over and over again. And you'd read, well, that's great for Joshua, but he was somebody and he had to lead a nation. What about plain old folks like me? The same promise has been made to you. The New Testament takes this promise made personally to Joshua and universalizes it and gives it to every believer in the new covenant. In Hebrews 13, when we are told the Lord says, I am with you always. You have the exact same battle promise that Joshua had. The presence of the Lord with you, even indwelling you by his spirit. How do we apply this word tonight? The first is this. Listen carefully. God is immutable. His servants may change, and they do. But the next generation has the same promises as we see here in verse 3 and 4. The same presence where the Lord says in verse 5, just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. They have the same law we'll see in verse 7. 
Our immutable God is not driven by fads. His purpose has always been the same, to glorify himself by bringing everything into subjection to Christ. Our immutable God is unswerving. Servants rise and fall. They come and go. They die and they're buried. But God's purpose and promise never changes. It is to build a kingdom that glorifies his son. And he will triumph. A second application. God's promises don't negate our activity, but they empower it. God vows to give the land, so Israel must get up and fight. God freely gives salvation, so repent and believe. God promises to sanctify, so mortify the flesh. Spurgeon, and I do realize that I'm now at my limit for Spurgeon quotes today. This is the third one of the day. So if any, before anybody tells me, I know I'm over my limit. Spurgeon said, Joshua was, was not to use God's promise as a couch upon which his laziness might luxuriate, but as a girdle to gird up his loins for battle. God's promises are prods, not pillows. Finally, there are some of you who your worldview is, is sort of Debbie Downer. You go through life melancholy. At our house, we call them Eeyore. We may or may not have a son who is Eeyore. But let me encourage you, my depressed and downtrodden friend, God's cause and righteousness will triumph. You must believe it. Every knee will bow before the greater Joshua, the omnipotent Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would keep us from an undue and even an unholy dependence upon man. Enable us to look to the, the greater Joshua, our captain, the one who will triumph over all his and our enemies. And remind us frequently, not of the persons, but of the promises that we might cling to them in faith.